It's Thursday, May 26th, 2022. This is the Hermetic Hour, and I'm your host, Pope Runyon. And tonight, we'll have a, as a guest, uh, Frederick Smith, Maximilian Paul, and we will review and discuss Howard Phillips Lovecraft's tour de force horror novel, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, written in 1927 and published posthumously in 1941. This macabre epic has influenced the works of Stephen King and Clive Barker and has inspired two film versions, which we will also review and discuss. The Charles Dexter Ward story deals primarily with traditional supernatural themes, alchemy, necromancy, medieval black magic, vampirism, and demonic possession. The central character, Charles Dexter Ward, is a young scholar in Providence, Rhode Island in the 1920s, who becomes fascinated with the history of his notorious 17th century ancestor, Joseph Kerwin. The wizard Kerwin had moved from Salem, Massachusetts to Providence, Rhode Island to avoid the witchcraft trials in 1699. He went into the shipping business, owning several ships and engaging in the slave trade. He was an alchemist, fascinated with, necro with a necromantic version of palmogenesis, raising the dead from their cremated remains. He, with two equally sinister European sorcerers, began grave robbing and collecting the remains of dead sages and scientists to learn their secrets. They also discovered secrets of immortality, and this worked against Kerwin in Providence, where he showed no signs of age for 40 years, and he did manage to marry so as to leave a bloodline so that he could return, which he did in 1928 when he possessed his great-great-grandson, Charles Dexter Ward, through a strange portrait in his old house, which young Ward had moved into. Young Ward is possessed by Kerwin and eventually finds his grave and brings him back to life. But old Kerwin then murders young Charles and usurps his modern identity. However, the Ward family physician, Dr. Willett, and Ward's father have Kerwin, believing him to be Ward, committed to an insane asylum. And that is where our story begins. Stay with us for all the inner secrets of what many consider to have been Lovecraft's best horror novel. Hi, Max. Are you with us? As you call, so I have been summoned. Oh, good. Excellent. Let let me go ahead and do the uh, do the summary of the plot, and then we'll then we'll go we'll get together and and, and talk about it. So let me go ahead and, and do the summary the, the plot summary here. Charles Dexter Ward is a young man from a prominent Rhode Island family who has disappeared from a mental institution. He has been incarcerated during a prolonged period of insanity, during which he exhibited minor and inexplicable psychological changes. His empty cell is found to be very dusty. The bulk of the story concerns the investigation conducted by the Ward's family doctor, Marius Bickwell Willett, in an attempt to discover the reason for Ward's madness and psychological changes. Willett learns that Ward had spent the past several years attempting to discover the grave of his ill-reputed ancestor, Joseph Kerwin. The doctor slowly begins to reveal the truth 
Behind the legends surrounding Kerwin, an 18th century shipping entrepreneur and alleged alchemist, who was in reality a necromancer and a mass murderer. A raid on Kerwin's farm was uh, was remarkable for the shrouded incantations, lights, explosions, and not-quite-human figures shot down by the raiders. The raiders swore any witnesses to strict secrecy about what they saw and heard. Willett's investigations proceed. He finds out that Charles had recovered Kerwin's ashes, and through the use of magical formula contained in documents found hidden in Kerwin's home in Providence, was able to call forth Kerwin from his essential salts and resurrect him. Willett also finds that Kerwin, who resembles Charles enough to pass for him, ordered and replaced his modern descendant and resumed his evil activities. Although Kerwin convinces onlookers that he is Charles, his anachronistic mindset and behavior lead authorities to certify him insane and imprison him in an asylum. While Kerwin is locked up, Willett's investigation leads him to a bungalow in Portexet Village, which Ward had purchased while under the influence of Kerwin. The house is on the site of the old farm which Kerwin's headquarters for his nefarious doings beneath, and beneath them is a vast catacomb that the wizard had built as a lair during his previous lifetime. During a horrific journey through this labyrinth in which Willard sees a deformed monster in a pit, he discovers the truth about Kerwin's crimes and also the means of returning him to, to the grave. It is also revealed that Kerwin has been engaged in, long, in a long-term conspiracy with certain other necromancers, associates from his previous life, who have somehow escaped death, to resurrect and torture the, the associates from his previous life, who have somehow escaped death, to resurrect and torture the world's wisest people to gain their knowledge that will make them powerful and threaten the future of mankind. While in Kurt Kerwin's laboratory, Willett accidentally summons an ancient entity who is an enemy of Kerwin and his fellow necromancers. The doctor faints, awakening much later in the bungalow. The entrance to the vaults have been sealed as if it never existed, but Willett finds a note from the being that he had summoned, written in Latin, instructing him to kill Kerwin and destroy his body. Willett confronts Kerwin in the asylum and succeeds in reversing the resurrection spell, returning the sorcerer to dust. News reports reveal that Kerwin's prime conspirators and their households have met brutal deaths in Europe, and their lairs have been destroyed. Now, that's, that's a summary of this, uh, of this epic. And, and it certainly is an epic. The summary leaves us with several mysteries that um, that we need to talk about. For one thing, who was this? The big mystery is who was in Jar 118? Because uh, Ward and his and his co-conspirators were collecting jars full of human dust, and they labeled them. And these jars were all labeled. And Willett. While he was down in the catacombs, Willett got jar 118 and poured a little of the dust in his hand. Well, Max, you want to talk? You want to talk about this? And we'll, we'll talk about uh, our, our speculations on this. Go ahead. <laughs> well, there's quite a lot of speculation on who precisely 118 was. 
I mean, this speech is right at the very end of the book as a final revelation when Willett uh, stumbles upon a, uh, a hastily abandoned chamber inside, deep inside Kerwin's labyrinth where he was in the middle of interrogating someone, this 118, whoever it was. And um, it's uncertain precisely who that was, but when Willett accidentally resurrects him with the invocation, the, uh, the conjuration that raises the, the essential salts into the actual shape of this long dead whoever it was, um, Willett then succumbs and seems to pass out, either whether that's induced by 118 or whether that just as Lovecraft tends to have from sheer cosmic horror, he next wakes up and is outside the catacombs. The catacombs are sealed up, the manhole cover which he used to enter the catacombs is gone, and a single sleaf of paper is in his pocket with medieval minuscules of uh, particular provenance. In this case, they are written in Latin, but the style of writing as I, um, as on, is 8th or 9th century Celtic, or Anglo-Saxon, which gives us a very particular location in Wales of sort, which implies that 118 comes from that region and that period of time. And I'm, I, but it just implies it, and at no point is it exactly stated. But uh, since we last spoke about this, I did find one small hint inside the text right before Dr. Willett raises up 118. Inside the same room, there are there is a notebook that Joseph Kerwin was scribbling in uh, as clearly part of his... Uh, interrogations and the last thing he wrote in this book was the single line F sought to wipe out all knowing how to raise those from outside which implies hmm. maybe maybe that 118's initial um, and I think they they always do the last initial because they they keep sharing this information in initialized form so that Joseph Kerwin is just C and Simon Orn is just O and Hutchinson just H. So F, whoever F is, their last name is starts with F. But again, uh, as per our last <laughs> long conversation in this regard, there aren't many alchemists or occult practitioners of Anglo-Saxon origin and that specific period of time that we can too emphatically and say that person is 118. Um, yeah, that was the Viking. That was the Viking age when when England was was being inundated by Scandinavian pirates uh, who were also immigrants. Well, they were actually invading. They were taking over parts of England. That era was actually still part of the Saxon conquest. Yeah. And as we have no idea who this was, and, and this this is quite a mystery. But I think that what we ought to do before we, we go any further with it is talk about palynogenesis and ghost slaving and what these people were actually trying to do. And also, Hutchison and Orne were wards to assistants, and in the story, they both remain over in Europe. I could slightly add to that. 
on scrutinizing the text further, he actually has three associates. Simon Orne and Hutchinson feature very prominently, but he does have one other that is referenced very, very scantily, very, 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 very scantily, and is revealed in a letter, I believe, from Simon to Kerwin, from Simon Orne to Joseph Kerwin, and he says, you know G in Philadelphia better than I have. Um, oh, yeah. And that might be the person who initiated both Simon Orne and Joseph Kerwin in Salem, Massachusetts, a one Reverend George Burroughs. But then again, as I say, they usually make the G a, uh, you know, sorry, they usually make the, uh, the, the initialization is often the last name. And since this is his first name, I can't confirm that. But there is another called G in Philadelphia. So there's actually a slightly larger network, which also implies an even greater network, as is typical of this story, hinting endlessly at a absolute plethora. It's an international, it's an international network. And uh, of course, most of these jars, the jars with ashes are being sent over from Europe. But for people who base most of their memory on Hutchison uh, and Simon Orn, uh, visually, most, most of their, measure, their, their memory is visual a lot, a lot of times and stuff like this. They remember that both of these were uh, were actually with the Ward in the Vincent Price version of the, uh, the story on film. And they were oh, both right. uh, there uh, in the catacombs. And yet in the story, they were both over in Europe. And Hutchison yeah. adopted a kind of a Dracula persona, and he ended up mm. calling himself Baron or Carese in, in, uh, right. in Transylvania. Yeah. And he, he had a castle. Uh, which which eventually the mysterious 118, whoever he was, blew up blew up his castle because it had yeah. volcanic eruption underneath it. And then there there was also uh, Simon uh, Simon Orn had an old Jewish persona in Prague, and mm. he ended up having his house in Prague burned down as a result of 118's final revenge. So whoever 118 was, that that's an ongoing mystery. And those of your listeners who are who are really into this, that's something you can you can dig into. And if you find out who 118 is, we would like to know. And then the other thing, yeah, though, that we need, yeah, we need to talk about is palinogenesis and ghost slaving. Before Actually, you do that, Poke, I wanted yeah. to add something a little bit more general, and that is just a simple note that this story Lovecraft has written. Um, the reason why. I adore it, and no doubt why you adore it and so many occultists adore it is because of the absolute saturation of, of very real occult references that have been exaggerated through the story, but still nonetheless so many, many, many real occult references which tantalize in their amalgam, in their gestalt in this story, which is just... It's it's just endlessly tantalizing, almost the same as other Lovecraftian fiction in that it, it's yeah. hints are so much more powerful even than the story themselves. And in this story, I feel Lovecraft has outdone himself in a way that he doesn't even know he has outdone himself. Because the story itself, <laughs> I feel, is even more powerful than he might have realized after all when he did 
finish it, he declared that it was, um, what did he call it? He called it a cumbrous. He called it a ponder. He called it a ponder. He called it a ponderous, ponderous uh, antiquarianism, because he used yeah. so much of his research on providence, uh, on old providence, and and he referred to it as 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 a ponderous exercise in in antiquarianism, and he was ashamed of it. He he got one rejection. He sent it out. He got one rejection, and then he withdrew it for the rest of his life, and it wasn't published <laughs> until 1941. He wrote it in 1927, yeah. and you're right. It was the like best so thing he ever authors. did. Yeah, like so many authors, he suffers from a great deal of low self-esteem. <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, but then uh, central to this story, and back to where I was talking about, central to this story is a concept which most of us hermetically are familiar with from Paracelsus, and this is palynogenesis. This is the re the resurrection of a living plant or animal, or or in this case a human, from their cremated remains. Palynogenesis. And uh, those of you who are regular listeners to the Hermetic Hour, you may remember we reviewed the book The Rose of Paracelsus by the, the fellow Picard. He was a Harvard a Harvard CIA spook who ended up getting on the wrong side of the the occult and then ended up going to jail for well he they put him in jail for life but while he was in jail he wrote the he wrote this great big long kind of memoir which he called the rose of paracelsus and it was based on the idea that paracelsus had originally come up with that you could burn a rose to ashes and then resurrect it with magic and alchemy there's more to it than that but that's palynogenesis and and where um, lovecraft got the idea for this was he was researching for this story, was not from uh, Paracelsus uh, originally or anything. It, it came from Cotton Mather. And Cotton Mather was uh, the preacher who, who, who spoke the invisible world. He was a self-styled exposer and, and whistleblower on, uh, on witchcraft in, in, in colonial America. And he wrote a book called... And one Wonders of the chief the prosecutors in Salem. Oh yeah, and he wrote and he wrote a book, uh, uh, and published a book called Wonders of the Invisible World, and not in that book, but in another another book by Mather, he quoted a French alchemical writer by the name of Borales, and the quote that he he had, which Lovecraft of course reproduces. Let me see if I can find it here. The exact quote is what we need. Uh, While you're looking for it, I would like to say uh, uh, what I've one of the things that I've done that we'll talk about a little later is I've plotted out the entire life uh, in chronological order of Joseph Kerwin, which um, because it's all delivered in um, snippets going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards through time, it's hard to truly understand this man and what he was about and why he was doing the things that he was doing and what these sorcerers were really up to and why they were up to it. And so I've attempted to come up with a bit of a hypothesis, a theory in that regard. And um, so after we've finished talking about palingenesis, I can I can certainly wax lyrical about what I've found there. Yeah, yeah, good. Let's see if I can find this, this quote because... This, this quote is, is basically the central, it's a central research theme for the, whole, uh, for the whole story. And they refer to it over and over again. 
I have it here if you'd like. All right, if you've got it, read it. As quoted by Mava, Borellis seems to imply the purely chemical process could be used to restore the dead, and he says, from the essential salts of human dust, the philosopher may, without any criminal necromancy, call up the shape of any dead ancestor. Yeah, but then he goes on. It goes, it goes on beyond that. I got it. I got it. By like method, from the essential salts of human dust, a philosopher may, without any criminal necromancy, call up the shape of any dead ancestor from the dust whereinto his body has been incinerated. That was it. And... They they attributed this to the French alchemical writer Borellus, but it actually came from Cotton Mather. And what is interesting thing, interestingly enough, when they resurrected these uh, sages, they tortured them for the information that they wanted. And this actually is this whole process is a reverse of the worst the worst black magic, by the way. And we've discussed this before in the Hermetic Hour. The worst black magic in the world is ghost slaving. There's nothing worse than that. And what ghost slaving is, is basically torturing a human being to death and to get them to promise to serve you in the afterlife. It's horrible and hideous. It's the origin of the death of a thousand cuts. And Idi Amin, the president of Uganda, he he used to practice this. It's a favorite technique of Polomayombe and, and Constantinos, uh, that, that monster down in Mexico that killed all those women down in Morales. Uh, that, that was his, ghost slaving was his thing. This is the reason why I absolutely will not, will not have anything to do with Polomayombe. I know, I know some, they, they say, oh, it's not all bad. Well, Polomayombe is, is, is hideous. But ghost slaving, as I say, ghost slaving is the torturing of a poor soul to death and to get them to swear to you that they will serve you in the, as a slave in the afterlife. And what these people did and what Ward rebelled against, and, and Char, young Charles Ward rebelled against this, he, he wouldn't do it. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why uh, what he finally did resurrect Kerwin, why Kerwin, Kerwin killed him, because he wouldn't go along with it. But what they were doing was they were bringing these very wise people and, and, and powerful and sorcerers and scientists and magicians to life, resurrecting them and then torturing them for their secrets, for their their knowledge, and in, in little, literally enslaving them in the reborn life. And and so this was a kind of a reverse on the ghost uh, the ghost slaving process. And that's one of the things that makes the story so horrifying is is the the idea of this. Yeah, as I say, Ward Ward himself wouldn't go along with it, and that's one of the reasons why Kerwin had him had him killed. And Kerwin, by the way, while Ward was alive and and Kerwin was with him, Kerwin was masquerading as a Doctor Allen, and he was wearing a beard and and dark glasses, so people wouldn't realize how much he looked like looked like Kerwin, because the the family resemblance. And then, of course, when uh, when he when he finally murdered young Kerwin, then he took off the you know the uh, the beard and the glasses, and 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 then he tried to become Kerwin. But unfortunately, <laughs> he 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 was still a, a 17th century sorcerer pretending to be a, a 1920s American scholar, and it just didn't work. And he end, he ended up in the insane asylum. But this ghost lighting thing. Uh, before we get away from that. 
I'd like to mention that, that this is not entirely, let's don't blame it all on Polomayumbi or on, on the, uh, there was a Navajo tribe that also did it. So it's not all, we're not trying to completely demonize the Africans. But there was, I found, and I, and I showed a letter, and I, and I directed your attention to it, an example of this, of ghost slaving, in Discovery of Witchcraft by Scott. 1659, in which a preacher, a Christian preacher, would go in to a man about to be hanged for murder or whatever and make a deal with him and say, look, if you agree, if you if you swear to inhabit my crystal ball after uh, and be the spirit of my crystal ball for 10 years after you're hanged, I will make sure that you go to heaven. And that is... That's Christian ghost slaving, and so let's let's we 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 shouldn't uh, uh, blame. Uh, I'm not trying to blame the third world. They, 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 they were, we were guilty of it too. You want to comment on that? Well, yeah. Um, it seems to be a fairly universal ritual, actually, in most forms of witchcraft across the world. The examples that we saw in Scott's discovery of witchcraft very, very heavily said it was certainly not just an, uh, something that was practiced in West Africa or something that was practiced in uh, the Caribbean or something that was practiced by the uh, American natives, but definitely something that seems to be based on the universal idea that if there are spirits, then somehow there's a way of, of, in, of forcing them to permanently serve you. I mean, ultimately, necromancy in, the, in its most broad sense is identifiable by the concept of some form of spiritual servitude, whether that's brief, like um, evocations of goetic spirits where you briefly uh, talk to them and ask them to help you out. You may pay them with uh, some degree of, of reverence or with some offering or other, or whether that is with um, resurrecting certain ancestors in a spiritual sense to give you information through channeling or through some other means. And the example that um, you showed me in uh, Scott's in, um, discovery of witchcraft was also a ritual, a very complicated ritual, very much akin to the style of this story, where a sorcerer would, a uh, magician would conjure up a five distinctly powerful spirits after a great deal of preparation and ritually conjure these five spirits and then entreat them to trap a lesser spirit in a crystal ball which would then it would it would stay there it would live there and you would you would you would um, try to get answers from it and i believe i think it was even the abbot Trithenius, i think i think it was him if i'm wrong i apologize I think it was Abbot Trithemius who had a crystal ball with seven spirits in it. I don't know whether that was him actually or another magician, but gosh, that's embarrassing if, if not. But um, that there were seven spirits which he could actually entreat to, to answer him whatever he wanted to hear. Probably one of each of the planets, I imagine. Thus, in like most forms of Western divination, it would be associated with astrological and uh, planetary magic. So I would say, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty solid mainstay of witchcraft, the idea of ghost slaving to one degree or another. 
What do you think? Yeah, this story, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, as we have been saying, this this is what Lovecraft pulled out all the stops, and he re, he, yeah. he researched. Of course, he researched Providence, Rhode Island, was his hometown. He grew up there, and of course, it's one of the oldest cities in the, in the United in in America. And he grew up there, and of course, he also used Providence, Rhode Island, as as the base the base for his uh, his Dream Quest novels. You know, the, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, which, by the way, is an excellent animated film, which which uh, we'd also recommend because we're going to be talking about about the film versions of Charles Dexter Ward, which, if our listeners have not seen them, once you know about the, the, the Charles Dexter Ward novel, you will really, really enjoy the films. And the, both uh, both films, you know, The Haunted Palace with Vincent Price is much more theatrical, but uh, and The Resurrected is closer to the story and more modern. But, however, they're both films are excellent. And and this Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, although the animation is kind of strange, takes a little getting used to, but that, this is very good too. And Providence, Rhode Island. One thing I want to mention about about the Dream uh, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, and I think it goes along with uh, Charles Dexter Ward, is this: Lovecraft. In the end, he's searching all through Dream Quest for, of Unknown Kadath. The dreamer is searching for this this beautiful city of his of, of his memory this dream city that he's that he remembers he's searching for it and finally in the end he discovers it and it turns out that it is the memories that he has all the way from birth uh, up into into about uh, about five years old of his growing up in providence he discovers that and uh, all the way from back when they were wheeling him around in a baby carriage and on, on through. And he wrote that in the story. The dream city of unknown Kadath was really the providence of Rhode Island of his childhood. And his colleague, E. Hoffman Price, who should have known better, got furious at Lovecraft for doing this and almost forced him to write a sequel and turn it around and 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 say no no it really wasn't a childhood memory it was a, it was a, it was another place, and that brings up a point. Lovecraft was not an occultist; he was really more of a scientist than an occultist. And even and and I don't know how familiar he was with Jung, but his Dream Quest for Unknown Kadath is is it's a masterpiece, by the way. And yet. The community, Hoffman Price and, and and one other one other colleague, they got down on him and they they almost forced him to write a a sequel in which he denied the fact that the Dream City was was an amalgam of his his childhood experiences in Providence, Rhode Island. This is unfortunate because there's so much there's so much in in Lovecraft that is allegorical and is metaphoric. I just thought I'd bring that up. I know you, 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 and I were discussing the possibility that there's that there's some relationship between um, young Charles Dexter Ward and old Kerwin. That there's there's almost in in a way there there seems to be almost a a Greek man boy homosexual kind of a a theme there. No, no, not exactly. Not not between Kerwin and Ward. No, what I I think, and and it's more of a 
uh, to the point of the idea that the book itself, the story itself, as Lovecraft uh, wrote it, seems to depict Kerwin, Orne, Hutchinson, and these sorcerers in a very almost archetypal evil light. Almost everything that they do, and rereading through it uh, and the life of Joseph Kerwin, when he moves to Providence, he doesn't just, just keep to himself. I mean, he could, I suppose, keep to himself and be much more reclusive. I know that in other stories, in like the Dunwich Horror, Old Wheatley does keep to himself up in the Appalachian somewhere. But Kerwin has, for all his evil, he has a very civic spirit. He, uh, a lot, rebuilding. I mean, but Lovecraft tries to, to present this, this civic as a kind of a, a, a facade, but he does it so frequently that from an acting, from, from the perspective of someone such as myself trained in performing arts and understanding characters and motives, it makes him look a lot more human than I think Lovecraft actually meant him to look because he keeps doing things for the community, even when the community utterly reviles him and even in the times where he wouldn't really need to do that. Like he donates a considerable portion of his library, his personal library, to the local community library, the city library, which burned down. Now, that is an unthinkable thing for an occultist to do, to part being bibliophiles to the last. Like giving up our books is just... So he presents him as, like, as doing all of these civic things from a, from a very, very selfish place. But I think... If one were to redo the series, if you, sorry, if one were to represent the story in a modern context, you could, by simply making one change to the story, just one change, you could deepen it exponentially. And that would be to have Joseph Kerwin and Simon Orne, his best friend and person that he was initiated with, have them be gay lovers, not for the sake of adding in diversity to an old story, but because by doing so, it changes his motivations considerably for being a, or if he were to be a, a homosexual in the period of time full of Puritanism and witch trials and hunt, it would show, especially since he, he was born near Salem, he was not raised in Salem, he, he actually left for England, and he explored the Orient, as Lovecraft says, and he, he was very worldly, and he came back, and he settled again in Salem, and he was obviously very, very close friends with Simon Orne, and was initiated with him um, as the, I will read the little phrase of their initiation, because it's, uh, it's rather, yeah. rather particular. Yeah. Um, here it is. Here it is. Um, it's written in certain notes. Hepzibah Lawson swore on July the 10th, 1692, at the court of Oya and Termina under Judge Hawthorne that 40 witches and the black man, who's probably Nyala Hotep, I think, in Lovecraft's fiction. But, it's, but that's also a mainstay of, I think, like the, the hammer of witches, this idea that they meet Satan in the form of a pitch-black individual, and also consistent with urban legends of... Uh, shadow people, by the way, but I digress. That 40 witches and the black man will want to meet in the woods behind Mr. Hutchinson's house. 
and one Amity Howe declared at a session on August 8th before Judge Gedney that Mr. G.B. Reverend George Burroughs on that night put ye devil his mark upon Bridget S., Jonathan A., Simon O., Deliverance W., Joseph C., Susan P., Mahitable C., and Deborah B. And this was an initiation that apparently took place just slightly before the witch trials themselves. And you can imagine that a pair of individuals, two young men, assuming they were lovers, would find that they, their whole existence would be considered utterly reprehensible to the Puritanism of the day. And like so many occultists of all ages, but even today, there is this recalcitrant spirit of rebellion that leads a lot of people, even people who shouldn't, in fact, especially a lot of people who shouldn't get into occultism, find themselves wandering into occultism because they want to rebel against the solid Christian religiousness of the United States or elsewhere in the world. I'm sure in, in the Middle East it would be Islam and there'd be just these people wishing to rebel against the, 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 the morals and the stuffiness of their time and even now they do that. And you can imagine then that a man who, has, who feels reviled by his own community, who feels outcast in his own community, seeks refuge in the company of these other outcasts. And then there's a witch trial which probably kills many of them who are his friends. You can imagine the resentment that would be behind that and how it would grow. And that brings up another point about the magic in this story. And by the way, I'm just getting into Mr. Morales. Let me see what this says. Who has a wonderful little article which is online, and we can all you can all look it up. Uh, the source material for Charles Dexter Ward, and this article that I'm going to quote from. Hang on a second. Yeah, Joseph Morales, J.F. Morales at Baharna.com. You know, look look this up. Uh, those of you who are who are really, really interested in Charles yeah, Dexter Ward, no, the sources uh, that this this article is called. You you can do a duck search for it. Sources of necromancy in Charles Dexter Ward. This is the Morales article, and it's you know it's really excellent. Uh, and and what I was going to say was is that one of the things that Morales brings up is the difference. The difference in the magic in Charles Dexter Ward is very, very medieval compared to uh, Renaissance and modern magic. From the Renaissance period on into modern, into the modern, into Victorian period, no, magic has been an exercise of will. You know, our modern magicians like Mathers and Crowley and, and, and Barden and our modern magicians, they've all stressed over and over again, it's the will, the will of the magician. The will of the magician is what is what's behind, makes the rituals work, is what makes the spells work. The, the, his, his belief and his willpower, that is not the magic of Charles Dexter Ward. The magic of Charles, as Morales is pointing out in his, in his sources article, this is medieval, very definitely medieval magic. The same kind of magic of the Arabian Nights, where, where if some person who has no, no knowledge of magic at all, some person who has absolutely no knowledge of magic, they wander into a magician's workshop, they pick up a, they pick up a book, and they read it, and 
a demon pops up or a genie, you know, uh, and it's because the power of the word, the power of the magical word, that's all, that's all it takes. And, uh, <laughs> my gosh, this is a very, very valid point. And, you know, when Peter Lavenda came up with that Necronomicon that he, that he came up with years ago and he published it in a leather-bound edition and all this, it was a bunch of Akkadian uh, magic that was uh, that, that, that he translated. I think he got most of it from Lenormand. But he put together this Necronomicon from that. And I know people. I know people who bought that book. And they they read stuff out of it and, and caused all kinds of poltergeist phenomena in their house. And so <laughs> the, the, this, uh, yeah, yeah, this crew. And, and uh, people believed in it. And my gosh, they still do. Well, I think Very it's one of those legends that just will not die. Uh, that actually brings yeah. me to a very interesting point. One of the things in this book that is supposed to generate a certain amount of revulsion towards Joseph Cohen, and certainly did apparently from the Providence community, is the contents of his library, which when, as, as an occultist, if when we go through it, we're like, oh man, that's a, that's a good collection of books. That's a, man, I've got to make sure I've I got a complete collection. What have I not got on this list? Um, you know, it's a, quite a nice collection. Let me let me bring it up here so I can uh, read out the contents of his library. Ah, here we are. Yes. So he has, strangely, there are two visitors to, to who visit Joseph Kerwin. One of them was a preacher of sorts. And these were actually real figures, as I understand it. Lovecraft inserted them, as he tended to do, to mix uh, fact and fiction in a in a blur um, like he, he, he tends to want to do. Uh, one of them, a Mr. Checkley, was a uh, Dr. Checkley was a, a reverend, and Kerwin invite Kerwin receives him, but then um, I guess he's very very snide and arrogant towards him, which again I can understand as he is a preacher, a Christian preacher, and Kerwin is is uh, ostensibly secretly not in favor of such things. But the second guest that he received was uh, a person by the name of John Merritt. And he's excited by this person because he's, he's, a, he's a famous scientific wit and he shows him his library and he gets almost autistically excited about showing him all of these things and which is out of character for someone thinking that they want to be secretive. And it shows very clearly that Joseph Kerwin wants to share these things, even though he knows he shouldn't, which is, again, another very human element to the monster that Lovecraft has created. And he takes him to his, his, his laboratory, his farmhouse laboratory, his secret, his secret library, and this is what he shows him. This bizarre collection, besides a host of standard works, which Mr. Merritt was not too alarmed to envy, embraced nearly all the Kabbalists demonologists and magicians known to man, and was a treasure house of lore in the doubtful realms of alchemy and astrology. Hermes Trismegistus in Mesnard's edition, the Turba Philosophorum, Gerber's Liber Investigationis, an artifice's key of wisdom, all were there, with the Kabbalistic Zohar, Peter Jammy's set of Albertus Magnus, Raymond Lully's Ars Magna et Ultima in Zetna's edition, Roger Bacon's Thesaurus Chemicus, 
Floods Clavis Alchemy and Tritemius's De Lapidae Philosophico crowded them close. Medieval Jews and Arabs were represented in profusion, and Mr. Merritt turned pale when, upon taking down a fine volume suspiciously, conspicuously labeled as the Qanun e Islam, he found it was in truth the forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al Hazred, of which he had heard such monstrous things whispered some years previous. In a sense, well, actually, he had to invent the Necronomicon to outstrip the darkness, the honestly wanting darkness, because most of those books, when you actually read through them, many of them are pious. In fact, most of them, I would say, are very, very pious, as is the, ten- yeah. the general tenor of all West- almost of Western occultism, bar some of the, most, the more insane elements. But he, the, love, the, the, the Necronomicon was invented by Lovecraft precisely because he knew that of any true enormity of the evil and power in most occult works were not yeah. conducive to a good fiction. And he needed to create a book far darker and worse than any that actually exists. And this spell that he cast upon all of his readers has led them to want a Necronomicon to exist, want it to be a real book, and it just isn't. Yeah, you know, get back to Morales' article on the uh, the sources. At one point in in this going through the library, they mentioned the forbidden book of Eliphas Levy, The Mysteries of Magic. And Lovecraft calls it a forbidden book. And uh, this is what he what, what he said, and I'm reading from Morales now. Experts told Dr. Willett that its very close analog could be found in the mystic writings of Eliphas Levy, that cryptic soul who crept through the, a crack in the forbidden door and glimpsed the frightful vistas of the void beyond. <laughs> now, <laughs> I happen to have, when we illustrate this talk of ours, I want to show it. I have an old copy of the Mysteries of Magic from about the period that when Lovecraft wrote the book. And the old, this old copy is falling apart, so we'll take a picture of it. But this is the <laughs> forbidden book of Eliphas Levy. The Mysteries of Magic. And what it is, is it's, it's just a compendium of Levy's writings. I was going to use it as, as a source in, in, the, in the cipher, my, my cipher manuscript book on the Golden Dawn. And my co-author and, and editor, Bob Gilbert, he said, no, 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 don't use that Mysteries of Magic. Use Transcendental Magic because the Mysteries of Magic leaves a lot of stuff out. Well, it does, but Lovecraft used it. And, and it, it's a compendium. So that was one of the, that, the Mysteries of Magic World by Levy is one of the, one of Lovecraft's sources. And one of the sources that uh, Morales does not mention that we have in our library, and Lovecraft certainly had in his, or at least he had access to it in the public library, and that's Lynn Thorndike's History of Magic and Experimental Science, 1920. You've had a look at that. Yeah, I have. It's... um really good series of books it's um oh, very, it's eight, very vo- eight volumes eight volumes yeah and it's the foundation quite frankly it is the found it is one of the foundation books it's like crowley's equinox and uh mackie's uh history of masonry it's it's one of the foundation books of a magician's library 
is Thorndike's History of Magic and Experimental Science. You can find just about every manuscript, every magician in there. That's where I discovered Secco Dioscoli, who was burned at the stake in, in the year 1360, for using a magic mirror. And, that, uh, and I found that in Thorndike. And Lovecraft, of course, went through Thorndike for Charles Dexter Ward as one of his main, it was one of his main research sources. But Morales does bring this point up about the will, about the will of the sorcerer and, and the sorcerer's will. This is something that has only been uh, emphasized in basically in modern times, the will of the magician. And the reason is that in medieval times and, the, and in classical times, belief, belief was what did it. That was the power. Now let's talk about the two film versions. All right. In uh, 1960, let's see, 1963, Universal International, who started off with Viking Women and the Sea Serpent with uh, Corman, that, that, was, that was their first adventure with Corman, uh, with Roger Corman. And that's where he almost drowned all the Viking women out there in the, in the water. <laughs> uh, but somehow or other, they all survived. Well, they only, there was only two of the Viking women that could swim. <laughs> and the rest of them were floundering around. <laughs> but anyway, Universal International came back to, court, to Roger Corman to make a film called The Haunted Palace, starring Vincent Price, Deborah Pageant and Old Lon Chaney Jr. Old Lon Chaney, this is this is one of Lon Chaney, Old Lon Chaney Jr. You know, he he, he played the Wolfman. Remember back in 1941. And Lon Chaney Jr. This is one of his last films, and he played Simon in this this version of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. And now, I personally, I, I know a lot of Lovecraft Lovecraft fans really don't like Haunted Palace because it, it doesn't follow this, uh, this uh, what what Charles Beaumont, the writer who did the screenplay, and Charles Beaumont is a very good horror story writer and a great Lovecraft fan. Charles Beaumont combined, when, when they gave him this assignment of writing a script, he combined Charles Dexter Ward with... Uh, the story Dagon and the, 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 and the novel expansion of Dagon, Weird Shadow over Innsmouth. He combined the three of them to produce this. And they used Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Haunted Palace, as a kind of a, you know, they had been making Poe films, a lot of them with uh, Vincent Price. Uh, they're making these films on, on, you know, The Black Cat and uh, The Mask of the Red Death. They, they, and so they got Vincent Price to do this, but it's very theatrical. Roger Corman pulled out all the stops. He must have, he must have rented every fog machine in, in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, he did it. He, he he's got so many fog machines going in that in that film that, that, as I say, it's a combination of three Lovecraft stories, but mainly Charles Dexter Ward because that's the character that Vincent Price is playing. And I really like the film. And one of the reasons I like why it. I, I really like, it, like it, it too. One of the Good. reasons why I really like it is because Vincent Price plays Charles Dexter Ward. He's terrifying. Price is <laughs> usually when he usually when Vincent Price does the did these kind of things, he had his tongue in his cheek. You know, uh, when, when he when he worked with Karloff and all doing these these films like The Raven and stuff like this and Peter Lorre, he had his tongue 
in his cheek. But in this one, Price is frightening. He really is. He uh, he does the possession, especially with that portrait, with the when he has the dialogue with that portrait of Kerwin. It's really scary. And it's not entirely and, out uh, of keeping with with the story itself. I mean, obviously, in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, that portrait does feature significantly. It's like a means. Uh, Joseph Kerwin has it painted onto the wall of his house that is in uh, Providence, in Olney Court. It's a panel above a fireplace, and he paints it onto the wall because behind it is a little nook which has all of his notebooks in it. Which so when yeah. Ward comes along and sees it, he loves it. He's like, "Oh, it's, it's me! How cool!" And he has it removed. His father has it removed and taken and installed into their home. And behind it, it's his notebooks, which is a key to unlocking the further mysteries solving as as as, as uh, Ward wanted to solve his ancestors, his uh, the life and times and the the, the secrets of his, his occultism. But as soon as Charles Ward resurrects Joseph Kerwin. The painting mysteriously dissolves, which suggests, much like in this, in, in the movie with Vincent Price, that there is a connection between that painting, the depiction of Joseph Cohen, and the spirit of Joseph Cohen. That once he's resurrected, he's no longer in the painting, which seems to follow. Charles around the room with its eyes, as Dr. Willett seems to suggest in the previous pages. It dissolves into nothingness, which is it's, it's another presentation, like in this movie, of palingenesis, that idea of a spiritual coming forward in time and, and a yeah. spirit of old in, in, um, uh, possessing the, and the, um, the descendant in a, in a new modern age. Another thing about uh, the Haunted Palace that I personally like because being an adventure story writer, I I like to to have an attractive woman, you know, involved in the story. And in this case, of course, Deborah Patchett is very pretty. But however, Kerwin resurrects his old girlfriend, and and she is is well, she she's a typical Roger Corman type. Uh, uh, type girl, you know. So there's a lot of sex. There's a, and and you also you have the idea that uh, in uh, in the haunted palace, the Kerwin is actually uh, supposedly attracting these girls from the village and breeding them to this monster that he has in the pit down down the in the in the basement in the cellar. You know, he has this big pit and and a sort of a ceremonial temple with a pit. Uh, with a monster in the pit, and he's breeding, and he's chaining. You know, he he ties these gals up, and he, he hypnotizes them, and has and, and and then ties them up and breeds them, and then sends them back to the village, and and they give birth to mutations, and so these uh, these horribly mu- mutated people are wandering all around the village. You know, well, that's, no that's the uh, the uh, yeah. shadow of the Innsmouth influence coming through there, the breeding oh, yeah. with the eldritch monsters. That shadow over Innsmouth, and and Dagon, of course, is the uh, the original idea of the of the fishing cult, you know, uh, with the sea monster. And yeah, Lovecraft so, likes so he, to always connect his his writing with with real world things, which is fun. It's uh, essentially the, some of the earliest forms of what today is called creepy pasta, which is an attempt to create a story that. Well, not just that, but some examples of it. 
uh, to seamlessly tie in these, uh, these concepts and these new expansions into real events, immerse them in real events, making the reader think, could this actually be real? And of course, Dagon is a ancient uh, Canaanite, ancient yeah. um, Babylonian god. I mean, one that we reference and revere in in our temple. Yeah. And um, it's it's odd to, I mean, the odd reinvention of Dagon that Lovecraft has uh, renovated. And, love, love, uh, and, and Dagon, of course, is, is Dagon, of course, is Capricorn, and of course, Lovecraft that does all this uh, cosmic horror. It's all connected to the, you know, to outer space and Cthulhu and all these uh, and all of Lovecraft's old ones. They they supposedly come from the stars, you know. And then Cthulhu, like Dagon, is Cthulhu is waiting down down in the deeps. And by the way, we might mention while we're on on to it that uh, Lovecraft Society's little silent film, The Call of Cthulhu, is certainly worth looking at. If you want to collect collect some Lovecraft films, that's one to get. And Whisper in the Darkness is point, the best. Oh, yes, Whisper in the Darkness yeah. is really quite a treasure. And it's interesting oh, yeah. how you how this society, lacking finances, obviously adjusts for that by making it more artistic. And it's the same thing with Dream Quest for Unknown Cutoff. The, uh, the artistic style is an artifact of the fact that they can't afford something more grand, but if you then invest yourself with that style, you can make something of it, you can turn what would be a disadvantage into a feature, into an advantage, but that also brings up the real frustration with interpreting H.P. Lovecraft's work to film, and there's been many attempts at it, some of them have been great, some of them not so great. I know that Guillermo del Toro has always been trying to create at the Mountains of Madness. Studios have been turning him down. That main, like, like the AAA title studios have been turning him down, whatever the, you know, like blockbusters have been turning him down. They're not going to give him money because they don't think it's going to sell. It's just a, I think what's killing Hollywood these days is the lack of vision. But that's just a personal pet peeve. But, that's so hard is the, the Lovecraft's fiction has, it doesn't suit film terribly well. It's difficult to present an unnameable, unknowable thing when film is a visual medium which demands that you show what is the horror, what is the monster. While we're on the subject of films, let's don't, for, let's don't forget the resurrected. Indeed, which is my favorite uh, interp uh, version of the well, it's only my favorite because it is a, a fairly faithful adaptation of the case of Charles Dexter Ward at the resurrected, and yeah. they also had budgetary issues, I believe, and had to kind of cut it short. And they've had they had to adapt again certain things, and it was an adaptation for the 90s, and it's very very stylistically 1990s with the the hair and the the puffy shoulder pads and the long trench coats and the constant cigarette smoking. In the, and it's very, very 90s. But it's very faithful as faithful can be to the story while still keeping it inside that sort of 90-minute window for a film. Because this story, as I say, if I were to redo this story, I would, I would settle for no less than a short series of six to ten episodes I would want it to explore the, the full life of Joseph Kerwin and contrast it directly with the life of, of Charles Ward. 
and explore that idea of the uh, the the ancient resentful horror of of Joseph Kerwin consuming the more innocent uh, youth of of Charles Ward. It's basically he's consuming himself. It's like his sins are consuming himself and destroying his inner child, which is basically anyway. But the resurrected is a fantastic yeah. version. It's, yeah. Bramley of the uh, the Lovecraft Society. Bramley uh, did a radio, a 10-episode radio drama of Charles Dexter Ward. I don't have it, nice. but now that we're talking about it, I think I'm going to see if I can dig up a copy of that radio broadcast. Please. Because there was back around the time they did Whisper in the Darkness, there was also uh, kind of a revival of old-time radio. We were even... We were even considering doing the seventh ray on the air and doing time radio <laughs> cool. ourselves because, you know, naturally, I really should have gone in for been a professional radio announcer. I should have been, and I, I don't know why I didn't. Totally. I really should have. But anyway, I want to emphasize on the resurrected. When they get down into the, into the catacombs, their version of the catacombs and the pits and the jugs full of uh, essential salts and all the all the stuff, and especially Kerwin's notebook. We have mm. got to show when when we when we do the animated, you know, the the visual version of this for the YouTube channel. We've got to show that notebook. And this, by the way, will demonstrate the tremendous influence that the case of Charles Dexter Ward had on Clive Barker for Hellraiser. That whole business. Uh, in Hellraiser, of resurrecting Frank, you remember? Oh, I remember. That's all derived from Charles Dexter Ward. And, you know, and then, yeah. then Frank sends Julia, yeah. He sends Julia up to, to lure men back to, back to the house to murder him so he can have more flesh and blood. That's all out of Charles Dexter Ward. Yeah. And it seems in yeah. in the case of Charles Dexter Ward that when you resurrect these people... Uh, from their essential salts, they have a hunger, a vampiric hunger. That um, yeah, oh, I, uh, yeah, it, it's it's again, it's that added vampire legends to this story, which just makes it so dense and complete with occult lore that it's uh, eh, that it's difficult to really go through it and do it all justice. It's just so dense and wonderful. Yeah, well. I think in many ways, I think we just about uh, we just about covered covered most of everything. I want to recommend both the films, Haunted Palace and Resurrected, and of course the rest of the Lovecraft films, Whisper in the Darkness especially. And anyway, I think that we just about covered this subject as well as possible. So let's look forward to you and I getting together and getting the graphics together and doing a version of this for YouTube. Definitely. And I want to thank Joseph Morales for his source article and the Lovecraft Society for their work. And, of course, good old Roger Corman. And uh, who was the guy that did uh, O'Banion? I think O'Banion was the fellow that did uh, – Dan O'Banion was the fellow that did Resurrected, right? Let's see. Yeah, Dan O'Bannon. It really is the best adaptation. It does, however, again, present the character of Kerwin as just – irredeemably evil, which, to be fair, at the end, he, he kind of is irredeemably evil. He certainly but, is, yeah. Taking, taking part in the slave trade, he not only slaves ghosts, 
but he also uses slaves. But the one thing I wanted to mention before we close is one of the other penultimate mysteries of this story. And that was, what the hell did these sorcerers want? Why were they doing all of this? And I found the final key. I mean, it's very similar to the series Salem. Funnily enough, I believe it was produced by uh, Marilyn Manson, Salem, which was a, a really nice three seasons uh, of a, sort of a short series that was really quite good about the witches of Salem. And it had the same kind of tenor and occultism that the case of Charles Dexter Ward represents. And you could certainly see Joseph Kerwin being a character escaping the witch trial in that series and going away and doing his own thing in Providence. And in a, a letter from Hutchinson or Baron Forenzi or whatever he goes by to Joseph Kerwin, he expresses their final goal. And he says, it may be right in a year's time to have up ye legions from underneath, and then there are no bounds to what shall be ours. And it seems very clear, similar to the witches in Salem, that, um, that Kerwin and his ilk want to dominate the countryside. I imagine originally they wanted to dominate the new colonies of the states, but given the location of Hutchinson in Transylvania and Orn in was it, yeah. uh, was it Poland? Um, I think that no, no, their plans had expanded to being to being global plans of world domination, where they would resurrect whole armies of these magically revived soldiers, and assumably who could not easily be stopped or killed by normal means, and mostly, as was in that little medieval minuscule written at the end, would have to be dissolved in acid in order to be killed fully. And so they would be uh, legions of undead, near-stoppable soldiers that functioned like normal soldiers, uh, very capable and unstoppable. And that seems to be the ultimate goal of these sorcerers. I mean, surprise, surprise, yeah, yeah. world domination. Yeah, they wanted world domination. Uh, there was going to be a new world order, yeah. and uh, <laughs> Which is funny, uh, because yeah, um, yeah. just after Kerwin <laughs> died, that was just before the revolution and just before the creation of the Illuminati and Hutchinson was already... You could make a whole idea that they created the Illuminati. <laughs> yeah, Joseph Kerwin didn't die for our sins. He died and we inherited his sins. On another note... I have to say that the case of Charles Dexter Ward also inspired one of the worst movies ever made, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Oh. <laughs> That's terrible, but it really, it is, it is true that Ed Wood must have read Charles Dexter Ward. I'm, I'm sure he did. That's where he got the idea from, for Plan 9, and, and that was really terrible. And and poor old Lugosi couldn't save it. It was it was one of the worst movies ever made. Anyway, <laughs> and and I don't recommend that one, by the way. Next week we'll uh, have another uh, delving into hermetic mysteries. And until then, good magic, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Bye bye. <laughs>